You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Not sure how much TV you like to watch, but there's a show on TV at the moment that uh, Mel and I have been watching and enjoying called SAS Australia. SAS stands for Special Air Services, who are an elite and highly trained British military unit. The job of the SAS is to infiltrate enemy strongholds, capturing or killing high-value targets and extracting hostages. Their motto is, who dares wins. Only the toughest make it through SAS training. Of hundreds that try out, only a handful make it through. You don't need to be the strongest physically, although that does help, but you do need to have a mental toughness, a resilience, an ability to stay calm and alert and focused under the most intense pressure and threat to life. The concept of the show is that a team of ex-SAS troops take a group of celebrities through the SAS training to see who has got what it takes. The training is brutal. It's designed to strip away any false confidence, expose weaknesses, and reveal just who it is that inhabits that mortal frame of a body. And in the process, the candidates learn the limits of their physical and mental strength and their endurance. The training is physically demanding. They have frequent marches carrying heavy loads of 120 or more kilos on their back, often while soaking wet after swimming out of a lake where the water temperature is four degrees and temperatures in the air can be close to zero. The mental training and the mental um, torture is draining. It requires split-second decisions while you're absolutely physically exhausted that would in real life be the difference between life and death. And it's relentless. The trainers never let up. They're barking orders. They're shouting abuse. They're demanding more and more and more of the recruits who already feel like they've given more than they've got. And it makes for fascinating television. Each episode addresses a different theme, character, teamwork, resilience, focus, and more. The contestants are made up of celebrities, past, present, and some wannabe future celebrities. And it's an odd cast of characters. Some are described as glamour model, or iron woman, or cricket legend, or PR queen. Jackson Warne, the son of Shane, the cricket legend, is the youngest at 21 years old. Merrick Watts, comedian, is the oldest at 46. The cast includes actors, Olympic swimmers, models, football players, and even that modern phenomenon known as influencer. Oh, and there's also Chappelle Corby, convicted drug smuggler. Now, why would anyone willingly put themselves through such torture if they have no desire and no intention of joining the military? And why would celebrities, of all people, submit to it when there's no winner declared at the end of it and there's no prize money. Of course, they all have different reasons for signing up for this show and this course, 
but a common one, especially for those who have retired after being at the top of their sporting profession, is that they want to find themselves again. Since retirement, they've discovered there's something missing. There's an emptiness that they don't know how to fill. While they were tearing through the English cricket team with their bowling or carving up the competition in the swimming pool, they had purpose. They had meaning. They had a reason to live. Their internal craving was satisfied by their sporting or their other exploits. But once they stopped, they were lost. And they don't know how to recapture that, how to fill the gnawing emptiness within. Of course, we all know, with the benefit of our Dr. Google psychology degrees, we all know that there's an inner hunger, an inner emptiness within every member of the human race, always looking to be filled. But unfortunately, most of us don't recognise just what exactly that hunger is, what it's trying to point us to. So we seek to satisfy our hunger in all sorts of different ways, none of them able to fill that hole for very long. For some of the competitors, competitors on SAS Australia, they've, they've filled their hunger temporarily, at least, on the sporting field. Others filled it on the stage or on TV or on social media. But what do you do when you find that that no longer satisfies? It no longer fills the emptiness within. That's what Jesus addressed in John chapter 6, the day after he miraculously fed a large crowd. If you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we'll pick it up at verse 22, where it tells us, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You'll recall from recent weeks that we spent in this chapter that Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to escape the crowds and get some much-needed rest. But instead, the crowds swarmed after him, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe as many as 20,000 people. And Jesus had compassion on them, healing the sick and teaching them about the kingdom of God. But by late afternoon, they were all getting hungry and there were no Maccas or Subway or supermarkets anywhere nearby to get food. 
So Jesus takes five small loaves of bread and two fish that the young boy had there, and he begins to hand out pieces of it to the crowd. And he keeps handing out pieces. And he keeps handing out pieces. And he keeps handing out pieces until every one of the 20,000 people had their filled and could eat no more. And they gathered up 12 large baskets full of leftovers out of those five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus sends the crowd home. It's getting dark and it's time for them to leave. He tells his disciples to head back across the lake by boat and he heads up the mountain to pray. And we know what happened next. A storm springs up on the lake, nearly swamping the disciples in the boat. But Jesus comes casually strolling by on top of the waves. The disciples are terror-stricken, as we probably would be too, until Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And he gets in the boat with them. And immediately, after nine long, hard hours of rowing, just to get halfway across the lake, the boat arrives at dry land and disgorges them all safely onto shore. And a few hours later, it all starts up again. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there'd been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, it's a good thing, is it not, that the crowd comes seeking Jesus, looking for him across the lake in Capernaum? Don't we all wish that people would come seeking Jesus? It would certainly make evangelism a lot easier. And at first glance, you might think it is a good thing. Any leader needs followers. That's basic. That's a standard principle. As they say, if no one's following you, you're not leading. You're just going for a walk. But Jesus doesn't seem so impressed. He ignores their question and instead replies with a rebuke. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What are you doing here? How did you get here? They asked him. They knew that the disciples had left in a boat without Jesus the previous day and no one had seen him walking around the top end of the lake to get to the other side. So they naturally want to know how he got there. But Jesus doesn't waste his breath answering that question. He knows what it is that they really want from him. So he goes for the jugular and addresses the heart of the matter. And he answers them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus rebukes them on two levels. In the first instance, they are blind in their seeking. They don't even know what it is that they've already seen. And then they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. Now, remember, when John wrote this gospel, he only included a small number of miracles. He makes mention of plenty of miracles, but he only writes about seven of them in total. And he calls them signs. What's the purpose of a sign? 
The sign is meant to point you to a destination, to let you know where that place is that you seek. If you decide to drive to Mildura for a holiday, do you head up the Calder Highway until you see a sign that says Mildura, 400 kilometres, then pull your car over and pitch your tent under the sign? Are we there yet? The kids complain from the back seat. Are you there? Have you arrived at Mildura? If you imagine you have, you won't come away with a very good impression of Mildura. Not as nice as I expected it to be. Where's the river? Where's the paddle steamers? Don't think I'll bother coming back to Mildura next year. Then more fool you. You've only seen the sign pointing to, to the reality. You've only seen the sign pointing to Mildura. You've missed the reality entirely. No wonder so many people who chase after signs and wonders and miracles never really seem to be fully satisfied with them. This miracle crusade didn't fill my need. I'd better go to the next one. Hopefully that will be better. But the signs are only ever meant to be a marker, a pointer to the true destination. And in this case, the true destination is Jesus Christ and faith in him. This mob didn't even recognise the signs that they've seen on the side of the road. They didn't set up camp under them even. Instead, they've driven straight past them, not even spotting them. You seek me not because you saw signs, Jesus tells them. The signs didn't even register with them. In fact, in only a few more verses, they'll be asking for another sign to give them reason to believe in him. But for the moment, that's not their motivation. Instead, they're driving around in circles looking for something to eat. You're seeking me, Jesus said, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Their motivation is simple. They want someone to feed them so that they don't have to work for food. Now, I have to admit that does sound pretty attractive. Most of us have to work 40 hours, sometimes more a week for 45 or 50 years of our life to put bread on the table and a roof over our heads. How nice would it be to have all that provided for us? And there are certainly some even today who choose that lifestyle. I don't want to work. The government can feed me. And Jesus has shown he's quite capable of feeding them. It's why they wanted to, by force, install him as king only yesterday. And I wonder, was that a temptation for Jesus? After all, he knew he was the king of Israel. He was just waiting for his crown. It's what he was born to be. And the crowd was offering to give him that immediately. And Jesus knew he had power to overthrow the hated Romans. Plus, there were 5,000 men there, not counting women and children, who would have joined him on the spot yesterday as his personal revolutionary army. And given that this was around the time of Passover and nationalistic fervour was at its annual peak, he could have quickly recruited tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, to his cause. But that would be to do things the wrong way and at the wrong time. 
Jesus has already faced this kind of temptation at the beginning of his ministry when the devil came to tempt him and to test him. And he passed the test with flying colours. And thank God that he did, for he went on to defeat a far greater enemy than the Romans, a far greater enemy than hunger or poverty or isolation or depression. Jesus went on to defeat sin and death and the devil, the greatest enemies that the human race has ever faced. And he did it to set you and I free from our slavery to that unholy trinity. But I digress. Food and miracles will always be appealing to us. It's how the Romans kept their people happy and subdued 2,000 years ago. Bread and circuses, they would say. Food and entertainment. People were satisfied with bread and circuses then, and it's enough to keep most people satisfied today. Who can be bothered looking any deeper than that? Keep my belly full and give me good TV to watch and I'll be happy. And I won't ever need to think about who this Jesus Christ person is. What is it that you want from Jesus Christ? What are you seeking that's assuming you even think about these things? Do you even know what you want from him? Maybe you think you are entirely satisfied with him and you don't seek anything more. But tell me, what are the things that get you most fired up, the most emotional, the most vocal? What makes you angry or what brings you the most joy and peace? Is it politics or sport or work or family or community service? Or is it him? Is it Jesus? Is it his word, his person, his presence? The thing that consumes your thoughts, your time and your emotions is probably the thing you are expecting to fill that hole within you. I hope that's Jesus Christ. But we Christians all need to take inventory of our hearts from time to time to make sure that we haven't been sidetracked by things that don't have eternal consequences because it's so easy to get sidetracked. Now, hobbies and sport and work and family are all good things, but we can never afford to let them become the main thing, the thing we depend on to fill that inner hunger. Or maybe it's nothing at all that you want from him. Maybe you haven't even given him a second thought. That's sad, for he has much more to offer than just mere bread and circuses. He offers bread that will sustain you, not just for this lifetime, but for eternity. He'll talk about that shortly further on in John chapter 6, but the bread that he offers will fill that empty hole, guaranteed. It will nourish you in ways that physical bread can never do. For it nourishes your soul, not just your body. 
The bread that he offers sustains and nourishes deep within into the deepest recesses of the soul that physical food can't reach. And it's offered for free for anyone who wants it, to anyone who will accept it. Verse 27, Jesus said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So much of our life is devoted to filling our bellies. It's the main reason we work. But we always get hungry again. So we have to work some more. And the cycle continues, relentless until we die. And so it goes with our inner life as well, our inner hunger. We work to buy things that we hope will fill the empty hole inside. Cars, boats, bigger homes, a new set of golf clubs, the latest iPhone, gym membership, all physical things that are enjoyable for a while, but soon lose their gloss. For they never satisfy that inner hunger for long. Have you too found that to be true? Several hundred years before Jesus walked the earth, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying a similar thing to what Jesus is saying. Come, everyone who thirsts, it says in Isaiah 55. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. But why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labour for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. How do we buy something that is free? Jesus said, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. How do we work for something that's a gift? It didn't make sense to the Jews all those years ago either. So they said to him, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They clearly didn't catch the bit where Jesus said, I will give it to you. The work Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with physical labour. For physical labour can only provide physical food. Rather, this work is spiritual, as it must be to provide spiritual nourishment. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Surely that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Believe. It doesn't take work to believe. It takes no physical exertion. So why then does everyone find it so hard to do? Because it goes against every fibre of our self-made man delusions. We like to think we are self-sufficient. And so everything we achieve is proof that we are better, stronger, smarter than others. 
ultimately, it's a matter of pride. It's why we we become so proud when we get wealthy or rise higher on the corporate ladder than our colleagues or are better at sport than our friends. It's the evidence we long for that proves we are better than other people. And we're better, of course, because we've achieved it by our own efforts. By contrast, how does it stroke our egos to receive an undeserved gift? It doesn't, not in the slightest. In fact, it can be humiliating because the undeserved gift reveals just how weak and dependent we really are. And especially when that gift is eternal life. So to be offered the gift of eternal life is a blow to our pride. We resist it at every turn. We would much rather earn our way into God's good books by doing good deeds for other people or donating large sums of money to charity or being careful to obey all the rules. But we can't. We can never do enough good deeds. We can never obey enough rules to make God owe us something. Which is precisely why he offers it for free. It's precisely why he chooses to give it to us instead of making us work for it. It's the only way we could ever hope to get it. If we could only get over ourselves and accept his offer, It would fill that empty, gnawing hole within us that the stuff of life can never fill. Jesus said elsewhere, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's what we must work for. That's what we must seek with all our hearts, his kingdom, his righteousness. And it comes to those who believe, and only to those who believe. If his kingdom and his righteousness become your deepest hunger, the thing you strive for even above earthly sustenance, then everything else you need will be provided for you for free. Jesus had an enormous crowd of followers at various times during his ministry. How many of those thousands who followed him followed him for the right reasons? So far in John's Gospel, we've seen very few. And I suspect that very few of those who call themselves Christians even today are following Jesus for the right reasons. You know, Christians supposedly account for a third of the world's population, two point something billion people. So that means out of every three people you know, one of them should be demonstrably Christian. Think about your broader friendship group, your relatives, your workmates. Does that statistic stack up? One in three. 
I bet it doesn't. And if it doesn't, that should tell us at least some of those who claim to be followers of Christ are not really his followers at all. As we get further into this story in John 6, we'll see that almost every single person in that enormous crowd abandoned him when he began to say things that they didn't like. And to think, only the day before they wanted to crown him king. How fickle is the crowd when it doesn't get what it wants? Even amongst your friends who declare themselves to be Christian, how many of them show that the greatest passion of their heart is purely Jesus Christ and his word and his church? And how many of them seem more interested in what they can get out of him? Wealth, healing, meaning, a place to belong. How many seem to be part of churches out of habit? Or because that's what they're used to doing? Or because the family all goes, so I might as well tag along with them? Now, it's not our place to determine how God should deal with them, but it is our place to determine how we will respond to his offer of bread that will sustain us and endure to eternal life. Will it be too hard for you? Will you settle for scraps and trinkets, stuff that won't last? Will you learn to ignore that gnawing emptiness that's designed to awaken a hunger for true spiritual food? Or will you put your trust in him today, in Jesus Christ, who sometimes says hard and confusing things, but never, never lets his people languish? He is always faithful to provide for those who call out to him for the food that he provides. And those who put their trust in him will never lack any good thing. For this one who offers spiritual food to us first offered his physical body to be beaten and bruised and eventually executed. And he did it willingly to pay the penalty for sin that we should be paying. And he did it to pay the price necessary to offer us eternal life and everything else for free. Friends, what is it that you are most hungry for? Do you only care to have your belly filled for another day? Or do you long for something deeper, something more permanently filling, something that satisfies forever? If your answer is yes, I want something more permanent, then the question becomes, who is it? That you are most hungry for. For there is only one who can satisfy that deep, deep hunger, that inner longing that you know is there but can't quite identify how to feel. And that one is Jesus Christ. Won't you accept his offer? It will cost you nothing, at least nothing that you will miss, I promise. And it will, at the same time, cost you everything. But take my word for it, 
everything you give up to be filled by him will be worth it. You will never miss it. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we spend so much time worrying about things of no real consequence, trying to fill that emptiness within with the stuff of the world. And yet all the time, Lord, you offer to fill that emptiness with true food, true bread. And we miss it so often, Lord. We miss it. We allow ourselves to get sidetracked. Lord, we come to you in repentance for allowing earthly things to distract us. And we come to you in faith, Lord, asking you to fill us with true bread. Lord, that you would cause that well of water to spring up within us that we read about back in John chapter 4 that bubbles up to eternal life and the bread that sustains and endures to eternal life. Lord, we need those things. We need those things to survive today. We need those things, Lord, to sustain us into eternity. Jesus, we thank you that you came to be true bread. Lord, we look forward to learning more about what you say about yourself as the true bread from heaven as we go further on into John chapter 6. But for Lord, now we cry out to you to fill us, fill our hunger, fill the depths of our soul, Lord, with your own presence, your Holy Spirit, your word, your heart, your love. And we commit ourselves to following after you afresh this morning. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Your sustaining and nourishing name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.